Amen. Isaiah chapter 52 this evening. It's nice to see folks come out. These are some tough chapters in the Old Testament. If it, um, you know, if it's boring or anything like that, it's not me. <laughs> Restoration of Israel, chapter 52, Isaiah, verse 1. <clears throat> awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Well, of course, this day is coming. It's future. Uh, It is at the end of the great tribulation that is coming upon the whole world. Jesus said, such tribulation such as the world has never seen. And when it does happen, when the Lord... uh, bars the unbelievers from, well, they don't come to Jerusalem. No longer will Israel and Jerusalem be a cup of trembling for all who would heave it away. There will be a formal celebration, a black tie affair. He says, uh, here, put on your beautiful garments. And uh, you look at what Israel has been through in the history of the world, and you just say, even so, Lord, you know, a lot of Christians want the rapture. And if I were a Jew, I certainly would want Messiah. And I would hope that I would fact check the things that I'm told about this Jesus. And I would hope if I were born in a Jewish home that I would become a born again Christian. Now Zion here, of course, as we've been covering, encompasses the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, Judah, the promised land, and the people of Israel. It has a broad meaning, and the context, if it needs to, will narrow it down for us. But where it says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, that, that, that's all of it. It encompasses the people of God. Eight times in Scripture, Jerusalem is referred to as the holy city. In Nehemiah, in Isaiah, in Daniel, in Matthew, in Revelation. And uh, yet, this holy city has been destroyed Twice, and God is the one that has approved of its destruction as punishment. But when? When is this going to happen? Just awake, awake, put on your strength. The prophet is encouraging the people of God. When is this going to happen? Well, Daniel is one of many prophets that ring in on this. Daniel chapter 2, this is, of course, when Nebuchadnezzar had the vision of the giant statue and the toes were made of clay and iron mixed and that doesn't bond well and of course the statue collapses but Daniel says and in the days of these kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. And so when does verse 1 of Isaiah 52 take place? At the end of the great tribulation period, that seven-year period of um, just um, three years, three and a half years of apparent peace for the Jews, and then the three and a half years of um, great tribulation. But there will be tribulation throughout the world that whole time. In verse 2, shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Well, Jerusalem has a long history of being trampled by the Gentiles, um, as I've been saying, until Christ returns. 
Luke chapter 21, verse 24, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, the times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar. And when he conquered and raised Jerusalem, that was the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And it ends at that apocalyptic moment when Christ comes to rescue the Jewish people. Now, you should make a distinction between the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles ends with the rapture of the faithful church. And I think it's important to point out, um, apostate churches and the Christians that attend and support them will not be raptured. The rapture is for those who are born again and in love with the Lord Jesus and his word. But those who are playing games will be left behind. The apostate church will survive, if you can say it that way, uh, the rapture, and they will be left here. And this is um, seen in the woman that rides the beast in Revelation 18. In Romans 11, we read about the fullness of the Gentiles. Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And uh, that is the, the church age, is the time of the Gentiles, and we'll see tribulation converts before Christ returns amongst the Jewish people, the 144,000 Jews, the two witnesses. But it's still, there will be many still to be converted, and I'll get to some of that uh, very shortly. But the church is the fullness of the Gentiles. And uh, it, um, it, it's a good thing. So the contrast between the times of the Gentiles, when Jerusalem and the Jewish people as a, as a nation were subjected to the Gentiles, uh, even Jerusalem today, without God giving allies to Israel, uh, she would not survive. But God has given allies to Israel, and Israel is invincible because of that. Uh, so, um, Israel will be rescued and restored. Zechariah talks about these great tribulation survivors of the Jews. And if you believe in, if you listen to some of the prophecies of these prophets and they've come true, you have no reason to doubt the future prophecies that remain to be fulfilled. Zechariah 13, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says Yahweh, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. He's talking about people. Jewish people. I will bring the one-third through the fire. will refine them as silver and is refined. And remember, silver is an emblem of salvation in Scripture. And test them as gold is tested, precious to, to the Lord. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. So out of the dust that the prophet is talking about here in verse 2, shake yourself from the dust. They will. They will arise. No longer trampled or humiliated by the Gentiles. They were enslaved in Egypt once, no more. They were absorbed, the northern kingdom, by the Assyrians, never again at this time that Isaiah is talking about. And, of course, they were captured by the Babylonians 
and uh, that will not happen. And all the centuries that have gone by with the suffering of Israel, the, the Spanish Inquisitions, the Nazis, all the other things in between, how Russia has treated her, uh, you know, it, uh, that's all going to be gone. And so he tells them to arise, and then he says to sit, get up and sit, you know, <laughs> kind of a, so it's certainly not as we would make, as I'm making a light of that moment, you know, get up, sit, not that, but he's saying arise out of the dust. And the sit is a metaphor for rest in peace because the Lord is now uh, coming to restore Jerusalem. No more Islam to hate the Jews, no more Gentiles to turn on them, and no more apostate Jews to trade on them either. They will be loosed, as he says here, Israel will be forever free from her haters and how we want that to come. Uh, Under the figure of captivity, uh, as Isaiah has been using since chapter 49, uh, he addresses the moral and spiritual bondage. It's, It's, again, as we covered briefly last session, it's more to the freedom from captivity that Isaiah has in mind than the Babylonian captivity. And, uh, you know, all the commentators go right to the, the Babylonian captivity when you, when you speak of being free or held captive in, in Isaiah. And uh, I covered that last week. How I, I don't think that's... Um, it's not uncommon for pastors and theologians and commentators to all just go in the same direction together without thinking it through. Uh, we're, I, I'm sure we're all guilty of it at some point. But you've got to watch and, and see if, well, why do I believe this? Am I believing this because my favorite commentator has, believes that? Or do I see it in the Scripture? And that's true for you, too. I mean, because your pastor says it, other passages you may have had, doesn't mean it's true that's why we study to show ourselves approved. You're encouraged to bring your scripture, your Bible and, and make notes and, and check these things. We're not trying to deceive, but the, the Bible is an intense, intense book. And anybody that thinks they can just, you know, wallow up to it and think that they're going to, you know, I'm going to get all this right, they're out of their mind. The Bible's not looking for deep thinkers. You're looking for anointed thinkers. And that's what John was trying to tell the church. You have no need that someone teaches you. And he wasn't saying you don't need Bible teachers, because he was teaching them when he said that. What he was saying with the Gnostics coming in and all their little secret junk, uh, he was saying it's not deep thinking, which the Gnostics boasted. Uh, They were uh, the quintessential seekers of the knowledge Satan had to offer Eve. Well, anyway, uh, John was saying you don't need them. You need to be anointed. You need to be with the Lord. And that will bring you around those who the Lord brings into your life, who will teach you the scriptures, as Paul uh, carefully lays out in Ephesians 4. God has given this to the church. And when you find a church without teaching, you find a church that's going to struggle. Um, uh, Anyway, I don't want to go down that whole rabbit hole right now. Maybe later. So anyway, the prophet is saying that you will be loosed forever free, uh, but there's more that the Jews needed than return from Babylonian captivity or anybody else's captivity. They needed to return to the Lord. And that's what Isaiah, the pro- all the prophets, were trying to get the people to strengthen the righteous Jews 
and to reach the apostate Jews so they could get right with God. And that's what all of this is about. Uh, and he, this, this being, you know, loose from the bondage, putting off the prisoner garments and putting on the new garment is common in Scripture, and it's very special. We read it about the prodigal son in Luke 18. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. You, can, you know, there was nothing monotone about that moment when that boy came home. Uh, the father was just, just so, he was ecstatic. And, uh, you know, it's a beautiful story. I get misty just thinking about it. You know, he looks up, he sees his son coming. He knows that walk from a mile away. And he just runs to him. And it's a picture of God running to the convert. And so Colossians, uh, and there are other places in Scripture about the new garments. But Colossians, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And so uh, there Paul is saying to put on Christ, to, to wear the Christ-likeness um, as, as your uniform. Anyway, um, the uh, Jerusalem is used by God as a timer counting down to the end of history, human history. Luke 21, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. Now, you can read that alone and say, well, he must be talking about the Romans destroying Jerusalem. But then he puts a time stamp on this. He says, when you see, the, in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand so the, the first temple, of course, was Solomon's. Uh, it was still there when Isaiah was ministering. Uh, it was there when Jer Jeremiah was ministering. But then Jeremiah also saw it destroyed. Well, when Christ comes along, it's not Solomon's temple. It's the one that was the second Jewish temple that Zerubbabel uh, put up. Herod, the, the wicked Herod, he expanded it, but it was Zerubbabel's second temple. Well, the Romans destroyed that one. And Jesus is talking about a third Jewish temple. Uh, and unless there's some nuance to it, uh, there's going to be a Jewish temple built. I think Antichrist, as I mentioned last session, is not knows that no one can beat the Jews with the military. So he's going to try a covenant with them. Uh, sort of like Balaam, you know, Balaam could not curse the Jewish people for Balak. And so he said, well, you can't beat them on the battlefield. Send in the women and seduce them into idolatry, which began. But uh, Phineas rose up and others, and they put an end to it. My point is the, Jew, uh, the Jews are going, the Jews want peace so badly. They have wanted this for years uh, and they let their guard down. They want peace so much. They project, you know, well, we want peace. Eventually, surely our neighbors will want peace. And they don't. And uh, the, the uh, Antichrist is going to come along, and he's, he's probably going to help build that third temple. That's where I'm going with all this. He says, I can't beat them on the battlefield. I'll have to seduce them into vulnerability that they would other not, otherwise not fall for. 
And he's going to pull it off almost. The only thing that's going to save Israel will be the coming of Jesus Christ. But as I already read, uh, two-thirds of the Jewish population in the Promised Land will be killed. So, you know, as the prophet Amos said, this day of the Lord is not a day of fun and laughter. It's it's going to be a tough thing. Well, verse 3 For thus says Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. Well, anyone who departs from the Lord of creation is cheated. They, you know, self-sold for nothing. You get nothing from Satan. Satan's not the king of hell. He's not rewarded that. Uh, Hell is an awful place for him, too. And he will be cast into the lake of fire. He and uh, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet of the Antichrist and those who defy, you know, the salvation of the Lord. The, he's, he's not going to rule in hell. But he does rule the underworld right now. He is a thief and he stacks up victims. And the only protection against him is through Jesus Christ. And the world is blind to this. Um, they, they think that the alternatives are sufficient. Well, the alternatives are traps. Um, they are sealed exits. And they, you know, they think when the fire, when the, if a fire should come, they're going to go out those exits and, and they're not going to work. Well, uh, man can do nothing to pay for their sin. Redemption from the power of sin is only achieved by God. We know that. But the difficulty is communicating this. And with success. And for that, it's a great dependence on the Holy Spirit. Uh, as Christians, we never can, we don't move without the Holy Spirit. Part of that is pictured by David taking the ark from the, you know, into Jerusalem. They move six steps and they stop and they, they worship, you know, they feast. So you get nowhere far without worshiping the Spirit. So, Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which is it just the grace and mercy of God. Uh, it's just immeasurable. First Peter, uh, that not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Well, the unjust death of Jesus paid the debt for us all. This is what the Isaiah 53 is going to be all about. Uh, now, I must point out, there's not the physical blood of Christ. There's no power in that. We don't believe in magic. This is a spiritual issue. The words that I speak to you, Jesus said, are spirit. I'm not telling you to engage in cannibalism. I'm telling you, unless you take of my flesh and take of my body, the words I'm saying to you are spirit. Uh, if we were saved by the physical blood of Christ, we'd all be lost because there's no blood for us to have sprinkled on us. These are spiritual issues, and they are bigger than the physical uh, issues. Uh, so uh, coming, keeping everything spiritual, dependent on the Holy Spirit, we are supposed to be a spiritual people. When we talk about being born again, that Greek word can also mean born from above, uh, that we're in total contact with the unseen. The unseen to us is very real, and it is not to the unbeliever, or the unbeliever has a counterfeit that they have exchanged um, the truth for the lie. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord Yahweh, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there, then the Assyrian oppressed them without 
cause. Well, there's a gap between the Egyptian oppression or captivity and the Assyrian enslavement of the northern kingdom by 600 years. Now, why point that out? It's critical for end time stuff. When the Lord comes and speaks about end times, he, he merges so much of it. He, he condenses it and leaves it for us to sort out the timeline. Because what's he supposed to do? The church wasn't even in existence when he preached on the end times. The Jews would never have understood him saying, well, the Gentiles are going to flood into the church, and they're going to preach that I am the Son of God, and you're going to hate them for him. What's he supposed to do? So he just condenses end times things, just puts packs it in. And it, it leaves it for us. And some of it has a dual application. Some of it is, is a single application. It is very... Uh, discernible. It just takes a lot of work. And you say, well, how are we supposed... Well, you have, you have the um, codes right here in the Old Testament. And the New Testament develops those codes for us. And then John, you know, in his apocalypse, he just, uh, you know, says, well, let me just show you how this all plays out. And he, he sort of runs this, you know... You remember when they used to show slides and you click them? This is us at the beach. Click. This is us at the restaurant at the beach. Click. Well, John is kind of doing some of that with the revelation. Well, verse 5, now therefore, we, uh, now therefore, what have I, says Yahweh, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them well, says Yahweh, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Well, baked into that are these kings in Israel that were monsters and God is like, you know, hey, these are my people. But those who are my people as far as a nation goes uh, are not saved as individuals just because they're of their ethnicity, as we've, we've, we've covered that. It's going to take more than being a Jew to get to heaven. And it's going to take more than being interested in the Bible to get there. You have to have that relationship that born-again relationship. And you've got to maintain it uh, because the wilderness of carnality will, will take back whatever it can. Just, you know, don't mow your lawn anymore and just see what happens. The wilderness will take it back and the tree will grow through your living room give enough time. Uh, anyway, when uh, verse 5 the um, the, the cruelty and the captivity of the Jews, how much they've suffered over the centuries. Yahweh's people enslaved um, because they disrespected God. There's nothing random with God. It's not like, oh, look at that. I must have missed that. I, I did not see those armies on your border. Never. God is sovereign. And, when, and, and that, I, I'm a true believer. Uh, when someone comes to church, whether they're a critic or just a soul in need, or there to serve or worship, it's not by accident. God's all over it. What you do with it is, a, is another story. Um, so when his people persistently defied him, he ordered even Jerusalem destroyed. Twice so far, a third one is coming. So this perception of divine weakness or meanness is addressed in Ezekiel 36. We don't have time to go into all of that. Just I'll take one, one excerpt from 36, Ezekiel 36, verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, 
which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. And that section, he keeps repeating that. You profaned it. You messed this up. I wanted to bless you. You wanted to make me judge you. And, and so God is saying, let's get this clear. Anybody that conquers you has not conquered me. You're being judged, and I'm using them to judge you. And I'll deal with them, too. Uh, let all men be a liar. God is not mocked. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 24. We'll be getting this one Sunday in a few Sundays. Um, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Now, he's talking to the fraudulent uh, believers, the make-believers, instead of the true believers. And he's saying, you know, this false testimony you have, you make unbelievers want to reject Christ. They blaspheme Christ because of you. Uh, you know, why can't you, why isn't the Bible enough? I, I mean, I'm not saying we, should, we, we can't read other materials on Scripture. We certainly can. But if those materials don't match the Scripture, if they contradict the Word of God, let them be anathema to you. Burn those things. You don't need them. Don't go by, oh, but I felt so good. My heart, you're being deceived. You're being suckered. And you have to, oh, but I felt a warmth in, warmth in my heart. You're stupid. Because you, you, you're trading your salvation and the truth of God for a sensation that he has forbidden. It happens all the time. I used to do a prayer in, in the church in Manhattan. Each of the boroughs, there are five boroughs that make up New York City. And Manhattan was mine. And uh, one of my, it was only like two or three men and all a lot of women, like 20 women or so. And... Uh, in the house of the hostess, she had, you know, bookshelves. So I looked on the bookshelves and I said, I better not do this again. Just just choose your battles. Deal with it from the scripture when we come to it. But man, there's so much junk on those. I don't know if she believed it or she just was a book hoarder. Uh, but you, you got to be careful. The problem with being a voracious reader is you run out of good stuff. So you start drinking the bad stuff. And let's uh, just be on guard. Anyway, the Jews were disciplined by God for flagrant disobedience. Big difference, practicing versus being a participant in sin. Uh, flagrant sin is, you, you, you know, who cares what God says? Uh, but the, the Christian that won't even look up, Lord, I'm ashamed of myself. That's not flagrant sin. That's someone struggling with it, with it with, against sin. So, uh, after... God allowed his people to be judged, they were mocked. They were mocked by their those who, you know, conquered them. A double humiliation. They were conquered, uh, and then they were humiliated uh, because they failed to understand that um, Israel suffers for turning on their God. Isaiah 40, verse 2, Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her, that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from Yahweh's hand double for her sins, healing for the humiliation, healing for the defeat. God's restoration is thorough. Um, So, uh, verse 6 now. Therefore my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks, behold, it is I. I love when God gets personal like this, you know. That behold, when you see behold in Scripture, it's, it's drama music. You know, if you watch a suspense movie without the music, you won't be in suspense. I do it all the time. 
Because I don't like them playing with my feelings, you know. They get that music going on. <laughs> your blood pressure goes up. Turn the sound off. So this is actually kind of good. So, but in the scripture, when that behold kicks in, that's the drama music, but it's not there. Well, it shouldn't be there for the righteous to be frightened. It, it's, it excites us, but to the wicked, it can be a warning. It says, behold, it, it's I, it is I. Um, so ethnic Jewish people will see what genuine Christians have been saying since the empty tomb. Zechariah 12, again, he says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. The language is New Testament all over it. The only son, the only begotten son. And, and the firstborn, uh, you know, just, just uh, Mary's firstborn, incidentally, because she had second, third, fourthborn, etc. Uh, so, the beautiful language. Well, you say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, it's clear. They, the, the house of David, the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the Nazarene. But then John goes ahead and, and I'll take just one where he does it. He does it twice in Revelation. But in John, he says again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they pierced. He's, he's applying Zechariah 12 to Jesus Christ. And so are we. And it is, uh, you, you can't think this stuff up. You, as complicated as the scripture is, uh, a little child can understand enough of it to get to heaven because of it. And yet theologians can go mad trying to, to figure out what Peter the fisherman was saying. Anyway, verse 7 how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says, Zion, you, your God reigns. And this is a beautiful song. We have this in song. Uh, and you get to the chorus, our God reigns. I mean, I, I love songs that just uh, magnify the sovereignty of God because his sovereignty doesn't frighten me. It encourages me. It's, it's, it's his invincibility. Not his tyranny. God's not looking to thump me upside my head when I goof. He's looking to restore me every time. His mercies are new every morning, because if they weren't, I couldn't survive. Neither could you. We have a robust salvation and a, just a, a, a treacherous flesh. And we've got to understand that uh, to be able to be useful. Well, here he says, you know, well, I just reminded, you know, whatsoever things are good, of good report. Meditate on these things. You know, don't, don't be the one that always comes and drags everybody down. Did you hear about the fish that died? Uh, you know, it's like, man, it's the grim reaper every time this guy shows up. Uh, the Eeyore complex. Go the other way with that. Hey, I got good news. I don't have any bad news. At least that I'm going to tell you. Well, Jerusalem uh, is surrounded by hills and mountains. Uh, in the ancient Jerusalem, before, you know, the taller buildings, you could go up on your housetop, which the people did, especially to cool off in the evening, and you could look out and you would see the hilltops. And so if a messenger coming, you'd see them moving over the hills, as, as depicted what well, happened in, in Samuel when, when David had a messenger coming. Anyway, 
That's what he's talking about. When, when it's good news, you know, it's, it's a beautiful picture. Uh, I remember the day when so-and-so told me. Maybe you remember the day when, you, you know, the, your child, you know, it's a boy. Um, I was, you know, away from home when my son was born. And it was, I remember to this day, uh, I had a captain. He was real tall, real big feet. And because they called him Sasquatch, not to his face. And... Uh, he spoke, you know, Corporal Gaston, you're now the father. And, you know, you remember, this is good news. You never forget these kind of moments in life. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, and he left out the bad news. You know, he's a premature kid, and you better get home. <laughs> so, anyhow, Nahum quotes this also. Um, so, Ephesians 6, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And you might have noticed in this verse peace and good and salvation. Uh, Jesus Christ did not come here with good ideas and philosophies. He came with good news and absolute truth. Of course, his ideas are facts and they are good. Uh, But the devil, he works to corrupt good news. Uh, Good news for us is bad news for him. And, you, you know, there are those that when they get good news hear good news of someone else, they become envious or sarcastic. And uh, you just fight those kind of things. That's what's going to have to happen if you're susceptible to it. You don't have to put up with that stuff without a fight. John, remember, remember when Philip, the future apostle, they found Christ and they heard him and he said, man, he couldn't wait to tell Nathaniel. You got to hear that we found Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth and 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 Nathaniel, like he, he puts, tries to put the kibosh on it. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Woe is us. And 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 Philip, who could never answer pressure, uh, you know, it seems Philip, how many loaves of bread? I don't know. Anyway, Philip, Philip, instead of arguing with Nathaniel, he said, "Come and see." He brought him to church. And then Nathaniel, you know, as soon as Christ sees Nathaniel, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile, somebody I don't have to worry about trying to deceive me, not up to something. He's a straight shooter. I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy that uh, people don't think I'm, I'm, I'm up to no good. Uh, I've tried, and they still don't like me. <laughs> I kind of like that sometimes. You know, it's funny. You know, like, this person thinks that you know, they're tolerating me. But in reality, I'm tolerating them, and they're too dumb to see it. And I go home. No. It does happen, though, sometimes. You can tell when somebody is being condescending, and, you know, you just like, what makes them think that the world revolves around them? It revolves around me, and it, they don't see it. The feet of him. This, uh, the him here is a collective pronoun, the, the feet of those, you could say, who bring good news. That would be us. That would be the righteous. And uh, uh, Paul quotes this section, but we're running slow on time, Romans 10, and he applies it to uh, the gospel, of course. Peace, good, salvation. Uh, the Bible is not a message of... The Bible is primarily not a message of doom. Primarily, it is a message of salvation. Uh, and it's up to the individual. You won't drift into heaven. You're going to have to stand up and, and, and receive it. Well, um, you know, it's like God says, to, you know, to the planet, 
Who would like to receive salvation? Stand up. And only the born agains, you know, the ones that stand are the ones that stand up. Who says to Zion, your God reigns? The, a glorious feature of God is his invincibility, his omnipotence. Again, not synonymous with tyranny. There are doctrines that do portray God as some sort of a tyrant. Uh, he's, you know, and you can't challenge him. You can't ask. It's, it's hidden. Um, that's nonsense. There are things that are hidden, and you can tell they're hidden because you won't find them. But otherwise, if you ask, seek, and knock, there are things that will be told to you. But not anything. Um, you know, you can't ask, you know, Lord, what's my co-worker's IQ? He's not going to tell you. <laughs> and there are many such questions. I'm being polite. Anyhow, First Peter chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Peter resolved that when I find hardship in my life, my, my creator is faithful, and I'm going to leave it there. And the, the pain that I suffer, I'm just going to have to take it. I don't like it any more than you do. But what I do like about this is not going to be forever. The day will come where they're going to, it's not going to be any more, any more sorrow, pain, any, any of that. Anyway, the destiny of man, not random. No matter what man says or thinks he believes, uh, God never loses control, no matter what's going on. He was not defeated by Israel. He was not defeated by Israel's defeats. Although the Gentiles thought, yeah, you know, your God, he couldn't protect you. But <clears throat> that they had opportunity to tell the whole story, and they did, especially Daniel and, and Ezekiel. Anyway, Israel defeated because they exchanged lies. Verse 8 your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when Yahweh brings back Zion. Verse 9, break forth into joy. Say together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10, Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eye of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Now, of course, this has not yet happened. This is why, you know, you, you can't apply this to the Babylonian captivity. This is still future. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 you want to know about prophecy? Well, here's prophecy. You know, this covers a broad range of things. Verse 8, those looking for redemption, your watchmen, in contrast to those who don't care who are disinterested. When Simeon was in the temple and Joseph and Mary bring in the baby Jesus, Simeon takes the child in his arms and he pronounces his blessing. Well, Anna shows up. And uh, Luke chapter 2, it's, uh, she speaks and she says, and the coming in that, uh, well, wait a minute, and coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for the, Redemption in Israel. You catch, she shared, there were others that were watchmen. They were interested in the redemption of Israel. They wanted their Messiah. And, and Anna, uh, she addressed those people. And so we're in verse 8 of Isaiah. He says, your watchmen shall lift up their voices. Well, who's not going to lift up their voices? Well, the ones that weren't interested. Anna found those that were interested. Simeon was one of them. And uh, Luke, uh, Joseph, and Mary clearly were, because that's how Luke got the information. He wasn't there. Someone had to tell him. 
And by the time he comes along, Simeon and Anna were long gone. But Mary was still around. Uh, Joseph was probably gone, but Mary was there. Mary hid a lot of things in her heart. She would, uh, you know, she'd hide the blessing. I don't know what this is, but I'm not going to forget it kind of a thing. And you got to love her for that. She didn't feel like, well, I must know. You know, she just, this, this is crazy. This, I have the best kid in the whole neighborhood. And it was true. The first time, the first time a mom got it right about their kid. Because especially the youngest, don't mess with the youngest. They got a double dose of venom for those who mess with the youngest. And I'm the youngest, but now I'm old. How's that work? Anyhow, this, uh, <laughs> so when he says, they shall see eye to eye, vividly, it will be vivid. This is not going to be, it's kind of obscure. No, it won't be. Verse 9, the arm of Yahweh is his earthly exercise of, of strength. Saving the people. This is going to be a global headline. That's what the prophet is saying. It's not going to be hidden. The world is at a loss to explain Israel's survival. Because they don't want to. That's why. And those in the world who want to end up coming out of the world. Revelation chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Then we back to that Zechariah prophecy. Question. How is everybody going to see him at the same time? Well, I don't know, but I have some ideas and I've submitted them to heaven. <laughs> he could make a slow, you know, it doesn't say he can slowly approach the earth like a comet or something, you know, just re-enter, coming into, you know, that's one way. I don't know that that's going to be it. He says as lightning flashes from east to west, you know, he's going to, they're going to find out. It's going to happen. Um, I'll be there. But I won't have my phone up because I think it looks pretty dumb. 500 people standing there. It's like, what? You want to just smack their hand. But they might get you and then record it and post it. Look, this is me getting beaten up by a bunch of angry people with telephones for cameras. Anyway, that could be a good thing. You could have telephones for cameras, kind of a fun drive for. All right. Uh, I like I like technology at my dentist's office and places like that. It's really nice. Verses eleven: Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of Yahweh. I think he circles back here to his audience because he's a preacher and he's a very knowledgeable preacher. Uh, so he, he circles back and he's sort of like, hey, let's just remember, in, this, in the face of all of these glorious prophecies, we have a commitment to separation from those things that are evil. That's what the saints are all about. And so he um, circles back, tells the righteous to double down. Paul picks up on this in Second Corinthians, and they needed it. We know about that church. Uh, <laughs> Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion is light with darkness? Get your identity right. Who are you? Especially the youth. You don't know who you are. You're, it's emerging. It's, you're coming out into adulthood. And it's, a, it's, it's an evolution more than a revolution. You're gradually moving into it. 
You can have a, a revolution experience into adulthood. If some, you know, be born in a country where bombs are falling, well, make you mature real quick. But most of the time, it's it's you emerge you emerge into adulthood. Well, know who you are, what uniform you wear, and wear it with pride. How come we don't see troops anymore walking around in their uniforms? Then yes, right. I'm proud of this. Well, there's a, probably a couple of reasons why, but if if you know, if, I, I would wear the uniform of Christ with pride if it weren't for that whole humility thing. <laughs> Are you a humble Christian? Of course I am. Silly question. Say, <laughs> Okay, the verses are all over the New Testament, so I'm not going to go into them. Every Christian should know Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 21, and actually to the end of 17 to 30. Uh, just every Christian should... You, Go back to that and recalibrate their walk from time to time. Anyway, I'm going to skip over the stuff about the commentators and their, you know, attaching this to the Babylonian thing. But but let me put it this way. The Babylonian, the Jews that came out of Babylon, they would have seen these verses and they would have applied some of it to themselves. But they would have looked far beyond and saw into the days of Messiah. When the first wave of Jews came... They, back to Jerusalem from Babylon, uh, Jerusalem was just wasted. It was nothing there. It was a barren land. The Arabs were there, and they weren't friendly, then or now. Yeah, yeah, their hand was against every man, and every hand's man was against them, as, as it was against Ishmael. Uh, anyway, only 50,000 Jews of you know, millions or hundreds of thousands for sure that were in the Babylonian Empire, only 50,000 came back with Zerubbabel. You read this in Ezra chapter 1 and 2. And they carried the vessels of the Lord like the Levites did, you know, when, when they were in the wilderness. And so, yeah, some of this applies. The second group that came back to the Promised Land some 80 years later uh, by under Ezra's authority, only 1,800 of them. And Ezra was a tough believer. You know, he was, I'm not going to ask the king for a, an escort. I know that there are robbers on those caravan routes and the way we're going. We said we're going to trust God. We're going to do that. Man, what a, what a man. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, the Jews coming out of captivity or wherever they find themselves were not to salvage any input from the Babylonian religions. They weren't to say, man, I picked up this book on palm reading while I was in Babylon. That merited a capital, that was a capital crime. And Christians will do stuff like that. You know, you know, not all Christians. Some, I think, that are poorly schooled. Well, I'm a Libra. You're a nut. That's what you are. I don't know if you are an almond or a macadamia. But, we don't believe that we are to have anything to do with looking into these spiritual forces out there. Uh, unless you have biorhythm. No, I'm just kidding. Verse 12. Um, so, you, so anyway, this is always a problem. Satan's always trying to seduce us into to looking for alternatives to faith. There are no alternatives to faith. Uh, you know, there's no auxiliary salvation or auxiliary methods of God. They're, they're put in code for us. Verse 12. Um, 
pardon me, they're not put in code like you can't read them. They're codified. They're, they're documented. Verse 12, for you shall not go out with haste nor by flight, for Yahweh will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, Isaiah points back to the Jews coming out of Egypt. This would be applied to the Jews coming out of any captivity. When they left Babylon, when Cyrus released the Jews, and he did other peoples too, back to their lands, um, they, they weren't chased out. They didn't have to eat their Passover meal and, and rush out with their belts on. Uh, and there was no Pharaoh army coming behind them to re-enslave them and slaughter them. Uh, so God makes this distinction. Uh, the rear guard, uh, Exodus 13, and then uh, the Lord standing between Pharaoh and the army, Exodus 14. And Isaiah references this. And what he is saying to his people is God's going to cover you. Um, the righteous Jews would be all on this, man. They'd be loving this so much. But then you had the naysayers, as you do everywhere else. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, extolled, and be very high. Now, these last three verses of chapter 52 really go at chapter 53. We don't claim anointing to chapter-verse divisions. They, they are very helpful. They've done a fantastic job. But there are a few places where... Um, you know, you scratch your head and say, why did he put that here? And, so, you know, you can say, well, it's a preface. Yeah, well, put the preface with the other stuff. Uh, I think it's a mistake, and I'm not alone. And I have to say that because if I don't, then you're like, who do you think you are? Well, I'm a guy that agrees with the other guy whose congregation said to him, who do you think you are? And he said, I agree with him. <laughs> anyway, so uh, these form... Beginning at this verse to the end of chapter 53, the greatest, one of the greatest sections in Scripture and all of human history. It is the Mount Everest, one uh, man of God called it, of Messianic prophecy. It is just, no one, the predicted details are too precise, too minute, too exclusive to one human being. For anybody to have made up and for any imposter to come along and say, see, I duplicated it. How do you get born in Bethlehem? How do you become, come from the tribe of, of, of Judah and the house of David? Just to begin. Uh, and then we can go on and on about the miracles and the crucifixion and uh, just uh, the unfairness, the innocence, the sinlessness. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, the prophecies are astounding. And it doesn't take much to verify them. You know, if, if Julius Caesar writes something, the world, oh yeah, it happened. On the strength of one witness, we've got many witnesses in the New Testament. We have four right out the starting gate, the Gospels. But look at all the people in there. There are plenty of people around that could have protested. They could have said, well, let's go down to the House of Records and let's find out that Judah, Christ was really born in the tribe of Benjamin. Well, they couldn't do that because he wasn't born in Benjamin. He was born in Judah. He had rights to the throne. Oh, no, okay, we're going down another, too much there. So this phrase, deal prudently, means successfully. He makes right decisions. Um, the crucifixion looked like a defeat to carnal eyes, initially, even to the beloved disciples. But Paul writes about the outcome. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Triumphing. It's really kind of hard to say when you're reading fast. So, uh, this is important. 
up to the 12th century, during the dark ages of the Roman Catholic dominance in Western civilization, the rabbis believed Isaiah 53 applied to their suffering Messiah. They had some differing opinions. There would be two Messiah. They were a little all over the place. But they believed Isaiah 53 was the sufferings of the Messiah. Well, the Christians began, there were still faithful, there's always a remnant. But the Christians were saying, no, this is the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And once that started, you know, picking up some steam, the Jewish scholars started reinterpreting Isaiah 53 in, in this section here before us and said, no, 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 it's not Messiah. He's, it's personifying Israel. Well, then we got some problems. How could Israel die for the sins of Israel? The Isaiah 53, 8. Uh, we don't, we're running out of time because you people got places to go. But he has taken from prison from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For transgressions of my people he was stricken. Well, Israel wasn't stricken for Israel. That's circular reasoning. Who declared that Israel was innocent of sin and therefore suffered unjustly? Who's willing to say Israel was, there was no sin. The whole book of Kings is judges. Just disregard that stuff. It's, it's propaganda. No, it's truth. It's documented. So it can't be Israel. Isaiah makes it clear that this is an individual that died for the sins of guilty people and he was guiltless. And the New Testament comes along and says, Amen. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 1 Peter. There's no way to get away from this. And if you're witnessing to a Jew and you take him there, you tie him up in knots. But he won't repent most many of the times. So, uh, Isaiah, of course, Isaiah is the most frequently quoted of the Old Testament writers. And uh, this chapter, of course, is all over the New Testament. Um, The opening words, Behold my servant, is speaking of this suffering servant in Isaiah 53. In 53.10 in particular. Highlights that. Maybe Peter had this in mind when he said in Second Peter, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Maybe Peter was saying, if you read Isaiah 53, you know it's been fulfilled. How dare you still disagree with the scripture? It's not going to work well for you. Because if the prophecies are true, the judgments are too. You can't just, you know... Edit as you wish without consequence. If you edit the scripture, you are suppressing the truth, and you will be judged for that, and you're not going to make it. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now, when he says, just as many were astonished at you, he's talking about Israel, And her disfigurement, because Israel was not supposed to be made a prisoner or a, you know, the whooping boy of the Gentiles. Israel was supposed to be a light of the world, but that was disfigured because of her obedience. And, but it's not going to, the Messiah, it's going to be a disfiguration there, not because of his sins, but because of our sins. Uh, So this is the servant. Uh, I think that some pastors, and certainly the entertainment world, uh, they take liberties with the sufferings, 
the physical sufferings of Christ. And I think we'd be better off without. When the apostles got to the crucifixion, they said, and they crucified him. And they left it there. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want, you don't need any details on this. Because the sufferings, the physical sufferings were nothing compared to the spiritual suffering. I can put it this way. I don't know, this makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable. That to say that his disfigurement was spiritual, spiritual and, dis, and, and immeasurable. The, the reason why he suffered the spittings, the beatings, and all the things that led up was documenting the connection to the prophecies of the Old Testament that God had this totally under his control. None of this was random or off script. God detailed it. If God wanted to take a different route and say, you know, I'm not going to document his sufferings. I'm just going to have them poison him and kill him. If he died that way, I'm not saying he did, just bear my, make my point. He still would have saved our souls because it was his death. It was his death. That's the main thing. That the blood of Jesus Christ is connected to the prophecies, the sacrifices, the types, all of it is tied in. And the reason why I say it, you know, the, the, use the poison analogy is because uh, it, it's not, what he went through did not, in the flesh, did not save us. What he went through in his death, the Son of God being murdered, that is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sins. Otherwise, again, you'd need the blood to sprinkle on people to get them saved if it was a physical thing. I hope I'm making that point. I should have said this in the beginning. I would have had more time. Would have taken my, would have talked to you in this kind of a tone. But at the end, I'm kind of pushing it forward. So, so don't be. You, you can't measure the suffering of Christ. It's not possible. You cannot. Uh, what. Uh, Recreate it. The, you just you won't. You'll never come close. We'll never fully grasp how what the impact was on a holy and pure being to take all the sin on himself. We accept it by faith. Uh, the suffering is you know, that we do have in Scripture of him is vital to understanding uh, what is what has been involved since the foundations of the world. And when, you, again, you take a verse like uh, salvation through the seed of the woman, you see, that was the virgin birth. And uh, Isaiah 53, when he starts documenting his suffering, he eliminates all humanity except one person. So it's vital. I hope, I hope, I hope I'm not losing you on that. You Feel free to ask me later. Um, and I, I like to be right again and again and again. Verse 15. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see. And what they had not heard they shall consider. Boy, that must have been a, 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 a sight for the prophet. Because in his days, no other kings were going to have any of what he was talking about. What he is saying is the true awesomeness will mute the critics. There's coming a time where no one's going to be trying to institute these depraved laws that we see. Uh, no one's going to try to get the Ten Commandments. You know, that was an easy argument to win. All the, all the Christians had to say was, it's Hebrew literature. What are you talking about? 
<laughs> what could they have said to that? That you have to get Shakespeare out and everybody else. But no, they wanted to make it a religious fight. Wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. Now I make it sound like I've got all the answers. Because I like... <laughs> I don't. And I don't think I do. But sometimes I do get them right. Um, not so much when I'm away from the pulpit. Um, coming back to this. like So coming back to this. Uh, Paul applies this to the preaching of the gospel. And uh, I want to close with this verse from Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. That alone is a story. How did the Jews get to be the people of the dispersion and nobody else? Nobody has been part of the diaspora as the Jewish people have been. And then the, the return. It's just phenomenal. He continues, Peter does, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God has elected people to be saved based on foreknowledge. What is that foreknowledge? That they accept the invitation of Jesus Christ. It's not like, well, I've just elected you because I like you. And I don't like him. <laughs> That's not what God, that is not election. It's an insult to say to someone, is it not? You mean you vote and you don't even know what you're voting for? We call them low-information voters. Don't do that with God. God is not a low-information voter. When he elects, it is based on his son, the blood of the cross. And, uh, you know, no one's going to be able to say, well, how did I end up in hell? You'll know. And we'll know why we ended up in heaven. It's Jesus Christ. Uh, there'll be no braggarts in heaven. Anyway, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. As come out, come out, be separate from them. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. See that sprinkling of the blood? Look again at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. It goes back to the image of the priests and the cleansing rituals. And Peter is summing it up and says, He is our high priest. He's the one that cleanses us. Let's pray. Our Father... Just, uh, just a blizzard of information in your scripture about you, how you do things, what you want from us and what you don't want from us. I think most of us can remember a time in our lives when we knew nothing about you. But now you're high and lifted up and we want you to use us to exalt you. For where you are lifted up, you will draw people to you. We pray that you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.